Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby coming to you from the Digital Shelf Institute's Cape Cod office. Rob's on from the Berkshires. Hey Rob. Hey Peter. Hey, so we dive in, uh, before we dive in, we had a fantastic discussion last week with Chris Parsons, who's the president of Americas of the Mayborn Group, around the new digital first omni-channel and how his company is rapidly evolving to take advantage of the opportunities there. It's a must listen. So we're gonna put the recorded link uh, in the show notes for you to, to take a listen to, because it's awesome. Hey Rob, I wanted this week to do a deep dive into the mind of Benedict Evans. He's one of our favorite tech analysts and writers. A recent newsletter of his was entitled Resetting Online Commerce. And so naturally that, that caught my eye. Uh, a lot more questions and answers in it, but really good ones that I thought would be worth going through. Uh, I think they're the questions that are gonna shape brand strategy going into this next digital first omnichannel world that we're focusing on right now. So uh, you read it, uh, you know Ben Evans, do you wanna Kind of kick us off. Yeah, let's let's take a step back from this particular article just to frame Ben Evans for for listeners that aren't familiar with him. He does, by the way, a lot of retail industry analysis as well, and does an uh, annual retail report with a ton of data that I recommend everybody looking at. Um, the way that he thinks, and the thing that I love most about him is that he looks for the next order in impacts of a major industry change. So, for example, the, the first major article that he wrote that I remember thinking, yeah, this is this guy's smart. This is interesting. He said, well, let's assume electric cars and let's assume self-driving cars. What then? And the questions that he then asked are things like 25% of Los Angeles's square footage is dedicated to parking spaces. Well, if you've got self-driving cars and they're electric, they don't need to park in the city anymore. What happens then? And so he he kind of goes through that that thought process with the next thing and the next thing after that and the next thing after that. And, and I, I love that model because most people are just thinking about what's happening tomorrow or this quarter and in reaction mode. And um, I think too few of them think through what happens in five years. Like what happens to a mall when both anchor department stores close down? What happens to the rest of the stores in that mall and so forth? So this article had a lot of those what if scenarios. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's useful for folks that are trying to plan out three or four or five years of uh, change in this market that's just going crazy right now. Um, these questions are good questions to have on your mind. Yeah, I love the quote that opened uh, the whole piece was from P.G. Wodehouse and, uh, and it, it goes like this. Aunt Agatha's demeanor now was rather like one of who picking daisies on the railway has just caught the down express in the small of the back. <laughs> and when I think of whether you're a retailer, an advertiser, a brand, a consumer, everyone has gotten run over by these shifts that are happening and particularly in COVID. So uh, there's, there's good stuff to talk about here about the down express. I would like to request you just do the whole rest of the episode in that voice. <laughs> Well, physical retail itself has been a boiling frog for 20 years. <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't. I could, but I won't. All right, so so take us in. So yeah, one of the things, one of the themes that he started off with was that physical retail has been, 
you know, certainly, at, especially in the U.S., you know, over overhoused. Um, it's been just being nipped away at for the last twenty years, um, and. But for that time, you could always tell yourself, he says, that sure, people would buy that other industry's product online, but not yours. You don't need to worry about that. And then uh, the, the thing that really stood out to me, I think we all understand now that anyone will buy anything online given the right experience. And if your retail model is based on being an endpoint to a logistics chain, then you have an existential problem. Yeah. And this is, you know, ever since 2008, we've been in a bit of a physical retail reset, apocalypse, evolution, you know, whatever, whatever frame you want to make. But you know, 2019 had the largest number of store closures ever, inclusive of the 2008-2009 recession in the U.S. And 2020 was looking to be bad, too. So um, and this is after the lar largest bull market, basically, in history. You still have physical retail closing at a record rate. On the other hand, you also have places like uh, Dollar General or some of these D2C brands opening a lot of stores. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's this kind of weird shift where there's more store closings than store openings, but there are store openings, but the store openings are of different kinds. They're, you know, the, the different store footprint models from a Walmart or, or Target or, or whatnot. And, and, and people have been just asking what's going to happen next. And Ben's point here is... This has been playing out for 12 years. And in those 12 years, a lot of stores closes, store opens, and, and it's just sort of this evolutionary model where there's change, but the change is slow enough. You know, a few percentage points here, a few percentage points there, companies can adapt. Um, and so the analogy is boiling a frog. Like you put a frog in, in hot water and it jumps out. You put a frog in cold water and you turn on the heat and the water slowly and slowly heats up. The, the frog doesn't notice it. And it, you know, at some point the frogs boil, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the shift here is one where we're taking, you know, his, I think his point is that we're taking a step function change at this point. We're not boiling the frog anymore. We're just, we're just throwing the frog into hot water right now um, with, with COVID. And if there were any categories that people were unsure of that would go online, like alcohol, you know, oh, there's all these regulatory constraints and this and that, they've gone online. Yeah. So now it's, it's a matter of, all right, well, Nobody's safe from this thing. There's the big, large ancient department stores like JCPenney are going bankrupt. Um, what next? Becoming Amazon dark stores, <laughs> by the way. That's right. Yeah. And if, if you've got a JCPenney that's in a mall, that's an anchor, one of the anchor tenants for the mall, and that becomes effectively an Amazon warehouse, that's not good for foot traffic. Right. Right. And and, and the second point he makes, or the, the, the next point we pick up on there is, you know, when that channel gets changed, when the when the consumer disconnects from the 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 retail store, when they have that opportunity to change the channel, as as Ben puts it, they may in fact uh, won't automatically go to those retailer websites. They might even go to entirely different categories. Uh, his point is, if you change the channel, then you change what gets bought. Yeah, I mean. I, 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 this to me is one of those second order insights that he has that I, I wouldn't have been able to come up with on my own. So you, you think about going to a mall, for example, let's say that you have to pick up clothes for back to school and you know, you're, you're a uh, middle-class American. JC Penney is a good store to pick up clothes for your kids for back to school, right? It's, it's got good prices. It's targeted at you and so on and so forth. So you go to the mall to go to JC Penney while you're at the mall, there's other stuff in the mall. 
that you might go past, right? And let's say that there's like um, your nephew is having a birthday or your uncle is having a birthday or whatever. And so while you're there to pick up the clothes from JCPenney, you just kind of prowse around a little bit and see what you can pick up. There's stores, I mean, my, my examples, these are personal to me. There's stores like a Sharper Image or a Brookstone that are really just discovery stores. Like you go into a shopper image in Brookstone and there's just crazy stuff in there, right? There's weird foot massagers and there's weird kind of crazy three-dimensional chest sets and there's stuff that you just wouldn't even think of to look at. And so you buy a gift there or you go to For Your Entertainment, FYE, which is still around these days. FYE, uh, you know, when I, when I was in high school, FYE sold CDs. These days it sells a lot of kitsch, right? It sells, um, you know, like X-Men memorabilia and stuff like that. And so you might go in there and you might buy like an X-Men thing. So there's a lot of these purchases, the crazy stuff at Brookstone or Shopper Image or the X-Men dolls or whatever that happen because of the foot traffic that's already in location. Yeah, serendipitously. Just, it's... Serendipitously, right? But if you, let's say that in, in, in the new era, JCPenney's is bankrupt. So you're not going to go there to buy your back to school clothes. Instead, you go online and you buy back to school clothes online. And then you've got to buy the birthday present. You're not going to go to sharperimage.com and you're not going to necessarily buy some rando electronic gadget. Instead, you're going to do something else. Yeah. And so a, a lot of these it's an Instagram ad or whatever, discovery has changed. Discovery's totally changed, right? And then there's the whole conversation on impulse and, and uh, how that works. And so change the channel, you change the category. It's not just that dollars move online. It's that the dollars that are online are different dollars than the dollars that were offline. And, and I think, you know, to continue the sort of the shift in retail, one of the things he talks about is also the donut effect as, you know, as, as workers go remote and some percentage of that will remain, uh, again, the, where are the places of discovery in our lives and um, city office districts or or work areas in, in suburban areas, they're, if they're hollowed out, that's a permanent change to retail. You know, um, if people only work home from home only one day, even one only one day a week, will retailers experience that as a 20% decline in footfall? And how many can survive even that shift, let alone people shifting completely to remote work? I thought that insight was brilliant, man. I, I hadn't I hadn't really put put that type of thought in my mind. I mean. Uh, at, at our business, we've been surveying employees about their intended return to work habits. And back in April, May, June, in, in that time frame, you know, there was a set of employees, like five, eight percent that said, yeah, if I could work remotely forever, I would totally do it. And most people, though, were thinking, I, I hate being at home. This is a pain. I miss seeing people. I just want to go back to the office. So uh, there's a lot of people that really just wanted to go back to work. Now we're in November. People have been working home a long time. You know, I, I've been watching uh, various folks I work with, you know, look at their Zoom backgrounds and they started off in a closet and it looked miserable. And now they've invested in a stand-up desk. They've invested in a comfortable chair. They've, they've repainted the closet. They put up artwork and they put a speaker in there. And now, you know, it's gonna, they're like, this is pretty good, dude. Like, I, I, like, I like working from home. And so we're steadily seeing in these surveys, people not, not saying I'm going to work remotely forever, although there's, there is a lot more of that, but seeing people saying, yeah, 
working from home one, two days a week. Perfect. I, I definitely want to work from home a couple of days a week. I do want to go back to the office, but, and so, so Ben Evans is looking at these trends and saying, look, if don't, you know, forget the companies that are going to go full-time remote, what's going to happen is most companies will have part-time remote. And if you think about that, then 20%, 30% of the footfall for all of these downtown shops, the, the, not just the lunch places, but the, the flower shops, the chocolate shops, you know, where you buy gifts for people on the way home. Um, and so forth are just not going to, you know, their, their bottom line is going to drop by, I mean, you could maybe 20, 30%, but literally maybe 80%, right. If they're, if they're working from home two days a week, instead of going to the tailor ever downtown, you go to the tailor in your own town and so forth. And so the, there could be just an absolute giant exodus from these office centers that is much more durable and, long lasting than, uh, than just the short-term shock that they're feeling right now with the offices being closed. Yeah. It's that, that sort of looking at it, not just it, like it's an on off switch. We'll go back to the way we were, but just the, the death by a thousand cuts of, of remote days, uh, is a really interesting one and, and makes one wonder not only about where does that business of buying lunches and getting gifts go to maybe online, but also what does that do to the vibrance of city centers and does it make it a place where people now want to go into every day? So, yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, like there was where I was living right in downtown crossing, right in the middle of, right in the middle of Boston. Um, there was a coffee and bagel place called Boston bean. And about 18 months ago, it shut its doors. They'd been there for years, but it shut its doors because there were, Rents were rising in the area. There have been a lot of development. There's a bunch of new towers that have gone up. And just like any other downtown, basically anywhere in America, right? And the uh, landlords thought that they could get tremendously higher rents than Boston Bean had been paying. And a coffee shop can only support so much so much rent on real estate, right? It's, it's, um, a lot of these are, are not high margin businesses. And so they, they, shut, they, shut, they had to shut their doors. That space remained closed through the beginning of COVID. So the landlord thought they could get a lot higher rent. They were still holding out for a tenant to move into that space. And now COVID, right? And and they weren't the only ones in that area. There were a bunch of landlords, basically, that were holding empty space that were previously restaurants or previously shops that they thought they they deserved or, you know, honestly, entitled to large rents. And in order for these downtowns to revitalize, these landlords are going to have to like really dramatically lower their expectations to allow businesses to go in there profitably. And that might be a really tough pill for a lot of them to swallow. I mean, you know, a lot of these companies are high leverage, high debt real estate firms where the, the debt and the leverage was... Uh, um, procured at a certain certain rental expectation, and so, I man, I I think we're in. You know, I, I'm a little pessimistic here. I think we're in for years of yeah. turmoil in these in these city centers. And they, Ben Evans uses the donut analogy. It's just like a, you know, follows out. Pull. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have an interesting report coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, we uh, the DSI is lucky to have an economist in residence. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, Stefan Willis uh, is is his name, and he's done a report for us 
on comparing the Great Recession of 2008 and the impacts that we saw there, folding in COVID to come up with a, you know, a, a data-based, uh, interesting look at what we can expect. And I mean, his top line thing is that we're in for it for several years. Like, uh, this is not this is not going to change. Uh, is not going to bounce back in some dramatic way very quickly. And he goes into a lot of detail about why he, he believes that is true. And then where are the areas of opportunity and, and, and goodness that can be seen. And um, one of those is sort of courage to act in a downturn. You know, when he looks at a lot of the companies that actually invested in things like marketing and advertising during the downturn and they they came out doing dramatically better than their peers who sort of crouched back and um so it's a and that kind of goes to the next point which is uh, among those sort of dealing with new situations and expectations shifting is certainly the traditional brand owners who are our listeners and uh and they are scrambling yeah i i think the this is the quote that is directly from the article. Let me let me just um, get this exactly right. Um, those traditional brand owners are also scrambling. Many of the big consumer brands we all know have historically been B two B businesses. P and G doesn't sell soap; it sells pallets of soap. Now all of these companies are trying to work out what a customer relationship would be and how many companies can have that. Hence, for example, Lululemon buying Mir for $500 million earlier this year. What does it mean to be a brand or a brand owner or for manufacturing distribution and capital for those brands when all of that is being unbundled and rebundled? So that's the quote. I think it's, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, Coca-Cola, I'm going to credit them for, for the, the following phrase, which I think is just an absolutely brilliant reframe. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, during the mass market era where these large manufacturers really are B2B businesses, they use the word customer to refer to Walmart. So yeah. if you're P&G or you're Coca-Cola, Walmart is your customer. Target is your customer, right? Um, me, Rob Gonzalez, who buys the Coke at Walmart, I am Walmart's customer, but I'm not Coca-Cola's customer. So the way that Coke is talking about changing their vocabulary and their mindset uh, for, for years now, they've been doing this, is Walmart's no longer their customer exactly. I mean, they're still their customer, but, you know, starting to use the word customer to refer to Rob, right? And rather than sell to a retailer, they're framing it as selling through a retailer. So the fact that Walmart is a channel to Rob is a framing for Walmart as a channel to Rob, but ultimately Coca-Cola's relationship should be with Rob, not you know, to the extent that it's possible, not with Walmart. And that's, that's a, that's a total reframe of the way that these businesses have operated for, for quite some time now. Um, and so that's, that's the big challenge here. You're, you're Procter and Gamble, your Unilever, your Coke, your whoever that has operated for many decades in a mass market world where Walmart is your customer and, and Walmart has really disintermediated the relationship with the end shopper. And, and now you've got to figure out how to build that relationship yourself with the, with the end shopper especially because a lot of these physical retail um, customers that you have are just not going to exist um, or exist in a very different format in the next few years. Uh, so that, that's a massive, that's an absolutely massive shift in 
self-identity and customer identity and the whole bit. And data, like wh what data do you need to be able to run that business efficiently? And, and you now need to understand your individual consumers. And that takes us to the next thing, which is really the, um, he talks about there was arguably a bubble in so-called direct-to-consumer brands and it burst at the beginning of this year. And I think that was when a lot of these um, you know, the sustainable customer acquisition model to grow and to continue to scale kind of started to fall apart for a lot of these brands. They just couldn't, without shifting their business model, uh, they, they really had to sort of e explode out and, and start selling through wholesale, like almost be, becoming more of a traditional brand because they couldn't make the numbers work um, as a, as a, only an internet advertising fed business. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's a key part of that, which we talked about this before. He says, one part of the question, do these kinds of companies produce venture returns? It's yeah. basically, you know, when there was a period of time six, seven years ago when customer acquisition through Facebook in particular was cheap. And now customer acquisition through any channel is not cheap because a new channel opens up like TikTok and Procter & Gamble's all over it. Yeah, These businesses exactly. have figured out how to jump on new digital channels very quickly. Um, so there's, there's no longer these, there's no longer cheap customer acquisition. So, you know, the, what, for, for, for a lot of the, a lot of the D, D2C brands hit an economic wall where they didn't really have a, a good customer, good scalable customer acquisition model that yielded unit economics that were remotely attractive to anybody. Um, but it's also it's equally clear that D2C is going to be a big thing going forward. So, like you know, my my whole view of the future of the world is a one where there's market fragmentation, where increasingly there's more and more spaces. Ben Thompson calls this never ending never ending niches. Yeah. There's more and more spaces where perfect brands for perfect segments can win. You know, and the example that we use over and over again is Peak Design, our uh, travel bags for photographers, and they're just if you're a photographer and you travel. Full stop. They're the best product that you can buy, right? Um, or or a, a noble for people that are CrossFitters. You know, you're, you're you're working hard every single day, and you need a certain amount of stability in your shoe. And um, you're married, and you want to be able to keep your ring on when you're deadlifting and stuff like that. There's products for you that are perfect for for CrossFit or CrossFit style workouts uh, that are not that are not just general purpose workout gear. You know, and and so. But these, these folks' customer acquisition model is very different. And also their ambition on scale is very different than a traditional D2C brand. The traditional D2C brands were trying to be the next billion-dollar brands. Yeah. The brands I'm talking about don't care about a billion dollars. They care about serving their small set of customers extremely well and being you know, paid fairly for it. That's a, I mean, so that's a it's totally different, different model here. Um, that's, I think, you know, what COVID has done and and really, what the D 2 C brands hitting the wall earlier to, earlier this year has done is just you know force that point of view shift. Yeah, and, and don't you think though that's also um, forcing into the traditional brands more of a of a different way of thinking about their product ideation and life cycle that they also will will need to that their reliance on billion dollar brands won't even work for them anymore. I mean, not anymore completely, but that they're also going to need to start thinking about revving up the product ideation cycle or acquiring a product ideation cycle that gets them more of these niche brands that together add up to a billion. Yeah, I mean, 
Sam at IRI and Jason Goldberg over at Publicis have both made the following point, which is the top 100 CPG companies have created $0 billion brands in the last six years, and Target's created six. And you know, it's, I, the way that I sort of frame that is those big, massive consumer brands, like where you're creating a good enough product for, for, for a mass market, that's going to be private label for, for a lot of categories. Right. And it's just one of those things like you go to the store, you don't really care that much about the product. You're shopping on price. Your consumers now trust private label in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. And so you see a private label brand and it's, it's cheap. You, you assume that it's going to be good quality these days. And so you buy it. Um, and so the I think private label is the, the future of a lot of these, a lot of the, the large scale brand approaches. So if you are a mass market manufacturer, the path forward is going to be how do you create highly differentiated products for a smaller market segments where you can be utterly dominant within the market segment and get high margins there, right? It's like um, Elmer's glue creating the slime versions of Elmer's glue. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that type of thing, but multiplied over your entire product portfolio. So that's, I think, you know, that's going to be different, right? That's going to be difficult. I mean, I'll give, I'll give you one kind of funny example. I'm going to, I'm going to WhatsApp dad's group. Mm-hmm. With with a bunch of my a bunch of my friends from college, there's like 15 dads on this list, and one of them was talking about how guys, is it just me or the green skittles taste different? <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure. I like them, you know. And so th- then the people were like, yeah, they do taste different. And people went out and bought new skittle packs and said, God, I did something is different. I can't put my finger on it. And then we, you know, we looked up on Wikipedia, and it turns out that the green skittle used to be lime in the United States and was changed over to green apple in 2013, right? And then, so we, we, we reached out to Mars and in, in Mars had been running a couple of different green flavors. One was green apple in China. And then, you know, they were running lime in the US and they run a bunch of consumer panels and green apple just sort of individually and in the Skittle set beat lime pretty handily. And so they, they sort of, you know, went back to green, they went to these standardized on green apple. That's a traditional mass market approach. And then, you know, on the other hand, you've got a bunch of my friends who love the lime flavor and they're like, why did they do this? And, and, like the, the, and it's sort of alienating to them. And so the, there's this kind of future tension world where, you know, product line extension, where you're, where you're, where you're really kind of getting specific about small sets of customers is the path to differentiation versus going mass market. Yeah, personalization. Come, come, choose your skittles. And can you do that at at with? Can you do that sort of thing at scale and with margins that still work? With, that, with that's the big thing. It's like you don't want to. I think personalization, where you produce like a thing per person, that's a that's a, a, a strategy a small D 2 C brand can take to yeah. be safe from Amazon, be safe from private label, have market differentiation, have good margins. There's, there's small private equity groups in New York that invest in specifically in manufacturers that do personalization as a strategy. But, you know, the companies that we're talking about are not going to do personalization. You know, the companies we're talking about, the question is, like, instead of creating a, another brand that's going to be $2 billion a year in sales or $1 billion a year in sales, you know, what's the size of market segment that's, that you can attractively address? And is it a hundred million? Is it 200 million? Is it 500 million? Right. There's, there's sort of a step down in, in uh, market segment 
that it, that allows for healthy competition in the in the world for private labels that you know becoming a default option. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Ben raises a lot of questions, uh, a few hints at where to look for answers over time, but uh, I think. All of these questions point towards a continuing disruptive industry that um, one will be exciting to be part of and, and fascinating to, to watch and discuss. And so we're going to keep doing it uh, now in our second year here at Unpacking the Digital Shelf. So Rob, thanks for, thanks for walking us through that. That was great. Yeah, well, thanks to Ben Evans for writing the article. I'll post it on LinkedIn as well. It's just a, it's a really, really great read. It gets your mind turning in a thousand different directions. Yeah, we'll have it in the show notes as well. So um, as always, make sure you find your way to our LinkedIn page at the Digital Shelf Institute. Uh, we're on Twitter at Win Digital Shelf. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you feel so moved, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's helpful to continue building our audience. But uh, thanks as always for being part of our community. Thanks.